If you turn to Daniel chapter 10 tonight, Daniel 10, as we continue our study here, we've got three more chapters to cover before we wrap up this amazing book. As we began in the introduction of Daniel, it, it really is nearly impossible for us to understand the book of Revelation without the book of Daniel, because so much of the information uh, that we have in the book of Daniel kind of illuminates what we find in the book of Revelation, also in the book of Ezekiel, and we'll see that tonight. Uh, and so we have now this beginning of what is the final three chapters, and they really form a single uh, reminder, if you will, of, of what is a detailed vision of the very last days. And remind yourselves that when we use that term, when the Bible uses the term in that day, um, it's referring to the last days, which began in the time of Jesus, continue to this time, but have a culmination in the very last days or the last day uh, when the Lord will finally finish what we finished in our last study here in chapter 9, which is that final seven-year period known as the tribulation. That period is right now on hold. God put a comma in the world's history. That comma is called the age of grace. The age of grace is that time when the Gentiles would uh, trample Jerusalem under feet, where the Gentile world would be uh, the predominant one. And then the Lord is finally going to deal with sin in a permanent way. He's going to put an end to it. And then all of the events of the book of Revelation that are contained from chapter 6 to chapter 19, uh, which we call the tribulation. The second three and a half years of that would be the great tribulation or Daniel's final 70th week. Uh, we now come to a little bit of a synopsis, if you will, of what that period of time is going to look like. And it begins as you would think it would begin. If it's a look at the last days, it has to begin with the beginning of the last days, which is the man is coming, a very specific man, a man that you know uh, as Jesus, one that Daniel would have gone, who is this guy that's standing on the river? But as we see him described, we're going to find out we know exactly who this man is because we can now look at the totality of Scripture and see what Daniel couldn't see, even though Daniel was given understanding into these things specifically himself. The rest of the world would have to wait for 500 and nearly 60 years uh, before the man would actually put his feet down on earth as Emmanuel. And so would you join me? We'll pray. We'll pick up in verse 1. We'll take the first 13 verses here of Daniel 10. Father, thank you for this amazing book that has instructed us about what the last days would actually look like, given us so much insight into what it's been like uh, for people throughout history to stand when other people have bowed the knee to this world, to the enemy. Lord, we as the body of Christ uh, can dare to be like Daniel. And so, Lord, empower your word to speak to us tonight, we pray. Encourage us, strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 here in Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king, uh, the word there is actually melech, which is, which is another term for king, but it simply means ruler or the Cyrus, the ruler of Persia. Uh, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Uh, and the message was true. 
And it's interesting, whenever, you know, if you ever preface this, now I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth. This is a similar situation. It's like there's, a, it's kind of like an exclamation point. Keep an eye on this because this is not allegory. This isn't a story. This isn't a theory. This isn't something you need to guess about. This is God being super direct, shooting straight with you. In other words, would be a good way to look at it. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. Would you please underline that? Because the appointed time was long. The message was true. In other words, the message that's going to be given is absolutely factual, intended to be literally interpreted, but the time frame for it is long. The amount of time it will take for it to come to fruition is long. And he, that he being Belteshazzar Daniel, understood the message and had understanding of the vision. And so in these next remaining three chapters, Daniel is going to receive this vision. We're going to actually get a clue as we begin next week's study in verse 14 as to exactly what the Bible is trying to say. God is saying through it in the book of Daniel what that time frame is. He had understanding of that vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. And I ate no pleasant food, no meat, no wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three weeks, three whole weeks were fulfilled. And so we have this beginning of this final vision that will encompass the last three chapters. In chapter 10, he's going to receive this vision, all kinds of predictions about what will happen in the future. Chapter 11 continues those predictions. And then chapter 12 basically responds to those things which are said in chapters 10 and 11. And so as you break these down, remember that when Daniel received these, he's going to receive every single thing because this is very late in Daniel's life. He's probably 83 to 85 years old, and he's going to get this whole thing at once. Daniel didn't get chapter 10 and then chapter 11 and then chapter 12. Daniel got the whole vision all at once. We added so that we could have reference points all of the chapter and verse designations. So assuming that Daniel was 14 years old, now when he came into captivity in 605 BC, he would now be 83 years old. He's continued in this office uh, for the better part of 70 years. And so Daniel has been in Babylon the entire time of the captivity. For every single year, Daniel was there from the first year to the last year. And remember, it was God that had predicted through the prophet Jeremiah that this captivity would last for 70 years. Jeremiah reminded the Jewish people that, look, you're going to go into captivity. It's because you've been disobedient. And this is going to happen to you. Babylon is going to take you captive. And so Daniel knows now in his heart and in his mind that he's very near the end of that captivity. It's about to be over. And so he's received the vision of these 70 weeks. Uh, he's given the timing of those 70 weeks. And if you remember, part of the, the prophecy of that, of that final week was that ultimately Jerusalem, the temple, would be rebuilt in troublesome times. 
that's recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 2. And it says there in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. And now I'd never been sad before in his presence. And therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And so I became dreadfully afraid that I was Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer. And I said to the king, may the king live forever. But why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? There, there was tremendous bad news as far as Daniel was concerned. Daniel had the opportunity to, to understand that the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, which would take place under Nehemiah's rulership uh, more than 100 years later, was not yet upon them, but he knew when it was going to happen. He knew it would be in trouble sometimes. And so this whole picture begins to, to unravel before Daniel. And from Israel's perspective... They had had one pagan kingdom after another come upon them for their disobedience. It began initially when they came into the promised land, who was in the land, but the Canaanites and the Philistines. After the Canaanites and the Philistines came principally the Assyrians. After the Assyrians, during the period of time between the Assyrians and the Babylonians, you had the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Moabites, a whole bunch of ites. And those ites oppressed the Jewish people. Then the Babylonians come on the scene. And after the Babylonians come the Medes and the Persians. And after the Medes and the Persians are going to come the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And then finally the Romans. And it will be the Romans that will take the Jewish people uh, into that time when these things will begin to unfold in, in the way that Daniel saw them. And so because the Medes are already there, they're getting ready to head out of history's view. And the next group that would come along would be the Greeks. And so you can expect there to be some Greek history <coughs> that would be in your Bible. And in fact, there is. Uh, the Hellenist Greeks would invade Palestine. Uh, they would come militarily as well as culturally. And they would bring the worship of the pagan Greek pantheon. And people for a long time kind of wondered exactly how much Greek culture actually got into Palestine. But as archaeology always does, it eventually gets to the truth of these things. And those Greek uh, temples that we thought should exist somewhere in this region, in fact, did exist, still exist, and you can see them today. And so if you travel up to the northern part of Israel to the headwaters of the river Dan, which is the main tributary of the Jordan. So when you say Jordan River, Jor means out of, and Dan means the Dan River, famous for the Dananite tribe. This river actually meets with the rest of the Jordan at the city of Dan. At this particular place, that river that you're looking at used to come out of that cave that is in the left side of that picture. And the reason that is important is because where those people are standing 
was the pagan Greek temple of the god Pan, the god of the wilderness, the god of the shepherds in the Greek pantheon. And in fact, they didn't know what this thing was until they began to discover the actual statuary that was buried in a pit that the Romans actually paved over when they began to build buildings, which are uh, behind you if you're looking in this picture. That entire river comes out of that mountain. It does not exist when you get to that wall of rock. That river pops completely out of the ground. The reason this is important is all of you probably remember a very Greek setting in the life of Jesus and the disciples. And you probably remember it this way. Jesus is with the disciples. They're at a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is that place. Jesus asked Peter a very, very important question. Peter, who do you say, I, the son of man, am? Very near the end of Jesus' ministry, asked Peter this question, testing him to see who he thought Jesus actually was. Jesus hears from Peter exactly what he wants to hear. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Right after that, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That cave is the gate of hell. Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi with Peter and the disciples. The reason he was saying that is the Greek culture, the Greek pantheon worshiped that as the entrance to hell itself. That river used to come out of that cave. And so when that river would flow out of that cave, you would make a voltive offering. You would throw it into the cave. There was a whirlpool in the cave. And if it got spit back out, the gods didn't want you. If you got sucked in, bummer for you. And so Greek culture had invaded the world to the extent that even in Jesus's time, the Greeks still had an influence in this particular place, which became the seat of one of the tetrarchs of the Herod family, uh, Herod Philip, hence its name, Philippi. And so you have some Greek history in your Bible, even though you probably didn't notice it until you understood exactly what the thing that was being said was Jesus wasn't actually talking so much about hell itself he was at a literal place talking about the Greek pantheon he said even the Greek pantheon will not stand against God's church because those gods are nothing I am everything Daniel's gonna step into this particular place in history and we're gonna get a glimpse of that spiritual warfare as Daniel now prepares to see this vision because the Greeks were on their way. They were, they were about on the scene. Alexander the Great uh, would come in about 150 years after the time of uh, Daniel's uh, end on, on this earth. And, and so we're going to get a glimpse of that warfare. Excuse me. Daniel's actually name, his name actually means God is a judge. And so that would have been a really, really unpopular name if you happen to be among the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, or the Greeks. Uh, and if you were to look at Daniel's name in that culture, 
Uh, every time Daniel came, one of the reasons his name was changed uh, to Belteshazzar was that if you were to run around and call him his Hebrew name, Daniel, God is judge. It's reversed. El means God, and Danny means judged by. So judged by God. Then he would have been in direct conflict with the, the rulers of the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. And so his actual name was changed because he was that kind of a guy. People could see in him that God was at work in his life and Daniel had a direct connect to the Lord. And so he was under tremendous spiritual warfare. The book of Daniel kind of embodies both aspects of God's righteousness, but at the same time his love uh, and his wrath are kind of viewed together. And during Israel's times of distress, uh, the suffering in Israel was great, but God was always faithful. The battle was real, but God always won. You can see this tension that existed in Daniel's life. And so in order to receive this vision, God's going to need to touch him. He's in a tremendously difficult spot, uh, much like many of you are. We, we live in that sense, our culture whether we like to think about it or not, we, we live in the most wonderful country on earth as far as I'm concerned. But our culture is predominantly pagan. Our culture is carnal. Our culture worships itself for the most part instead of the true and the living God. And so you, like Daniel, are going to be in that type of an environment to where your faith is going to be tested. Whether you're going to judge by God's righteousness or whether you're going to judge by the world standards, you're going to be in that particular situation. Just exactly as Daniel was. And so this passage of scripture really kind of in that sense applies to you. In three of the five touches that God places on Daniel's life, two of them we've already passed through, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9. The other three are here in chapter 10. And as we see Daniel in this particular spot, as he's being prepared to receive this touch from the Lord, now we have to imagine what he was going through. He's been fasting for three weeks. And now, because we know he didn't eat any of the, the goodies that the king offered, this was what we would call a partial fast, or there's even some that call it a Daniel fast. So it was more than likely water and some vegetables. But nonetheless, he was hungry. He was denying himself. He was in that place to where he, he was able to hear some deep things from the Lord. And so his preparation was in that vein. And God's character and God's nature is going to be revealed in what Daniel sees. And whether we like it or not, God's character and God's nature is revealed through his word. To us today. Daniel got a specific vision from the Lord. We have that now in written form. It's called your Bible. We have the word of the Lord in that sense, his revelation to us. And whether we like it or not, Daniel understood some things that people didn't really appreciate. And one was that God was one day going to judge this pagan nation that had taken the children of Israel captive. Even though God allowed it, God even purposed it, 
God still was going to punish them for what they did to the Jewish people because God is perfectly righteous. So even when he allows bad things to happen to good people, God never loses sight of his righteousness. God doesn't all of a sudden become unrighteous. He doesn't get angry for the sake of anger. If God is angry, he's angry in righteousness. When God judges, he judges in righteousness. When God has an opinion about any particular subject that you might read about in Scripture, he is perfectly righteous in what he says about what he thinks about certain situations. So you can count on the righteousness of God uh, to, to be perfectly balanced in who God is. People often have a tough time with God expressing his wrath. And they say, well, how can God express his wrath on his creation? Because God loves us. And because God loves us, he doesn't let evil go on forever. One day he's going to wrap Satan up in chains and throw him into the pit. And I'm pretty sure we're all looking forward to that day. Amen? God wouldn't do that unless there's a reason to do that. If there was any chance that Satan was going to turn around and repent, uh, God would, would relent on those things. But there's no chance. He won't. That's his character. That's his nature. And so one day, we've already been told what's going to happen to him. But he has not told every single human being that certain people are destined for his wrath and certain people are not. He has given the opportunity for anyone who wants to, to repent of their sin and be saved. So his wrath is directly linked also to his love. You can either have his love or you'll unfortunately face his wrath. If you want his love, that comes from having his righteousness as well. And that righteousness comes to you by being in Christ Jesus by accepting Christ as your Savior and your Lord, and thereby Christ's own righteousness is placed in your account. Daniel's understanding this. He's going, man, God is going to righteously judge this nation. Now for us, we have a picture of that in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. In other words, you can look at the creation and understand the love of the creator. You can look at what God has made and go, there's a loving God behind that. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so they were without excuse. You see, the Babylonians, people have a tough time understanding this. The Babylonians had a chance to understand God's absolute love for them. And people say, well, you know, Jesus hadn't come to the earth and the gospel hadn't been preached and there was no way. In the very same way that Abraham understood who God was, the Babylonians, through the creation and through the witness of the things in the world that God has always had on this earth, a testimony of himself, people could understand that God loved them, including the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Moabites. There was nobody created for destruction. They chose to go that direction. 
Romans 1.24 says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Why is that important? Because the Greek pantheon was made out of animals, for the most part. They worshipped the creation and not the creator. That's who Pan was. He was half man and half goat. And so they blended it. And so Daniel's in this environment where, where he's having to choose between the righteousness of God and the things of the world that would have made him comfortable. And that's where this touches us. We're in exactly the same position. Now, it isn't going to come out. Nobody's probably going to. I, I doubt very seriously you're going to have anybody come up to your door, you know, knock on Saturday morning and say, hi, we're here. We're pan worshipers. And we've got a little half goat, half man dude we'd like you to bow down to. That's probably not going to happen. But I guarantee you, you're going to see things on your television where people are going to try and convince you to worship uh, human sexuality. People are going to try and convince you to worship materialism. Um, even the, uh, the, the acquiring of power, prestige, things that appeal to your flesh. And so Daniel was in that environment, and it is in that environment that God touches his life. That is where the Lord speaks to him. And I want to say this as gently as I can. Not everything God says to mankind is, well, it's okay, sweetie. You know, just come on over here. And we'll talk about this for the seven billionth time. Now, every once in a while, God says, I'm done. It's over. You've crossed the line. You've gone too far. I'm not going any further. God has his limits. And the Babylonians had reached that limit. The Medes and the Persians were about to reach that limit. The Greeks would reach that limit. The Romans reached that limit. And every culture that has ever existed on earth when they test God will find out at the end of it, God is righteous. That's why it's so important for us as Americans to hold a biblical worldview, to interject every, into every area of our human lives the fact that we are Christians first, we bow to no one save King Jesus. Because that's what Daniel did. Daniel refused to bow his knee to the false gods of first the Babylonians, then the false gods of the Medes and the Persians, and ultimately he would be around right at the arrival of the, the Greeks. Throughout history, when God's people have stood, God has been able to use us to transform our culture. And so it is there that we see the appearance of this man. Verse 4. And now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, so in the Fertile Crescent, what is known as the Fertile Crescent, this area of land that exists between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, also known to many as the Cradle of Civilization, uh, it was the land of the Ur of Chaldees for Abraham. It's the land of the Babylonians. Uh, part of it would be the land of the Assyrian Empire as well. And in fact, the capital city 
uh, of, of the Assyrians was Nimrud, which is in modern-day Iraq. And so you, you have this cradle of civilization. It was there. It's interesting to me that God came to the place where humanity thought that it ruled. That is the Tigris. And I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man. And now look how he's clothed. And this is why we often will say that without the book of Daniel, it becomes very difficult to understand the book of Revelation, if not impossible. And the book of Revelation helps us to understand the book of Daniel. We happen to have the blessing of having both of them simultaneously. But Daniel only had what was said to him, that I lifted up my eyes and this certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, and his eyes like torches of fire. His arms and his feet burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words was like the voice of a multitude. And so Daniel gives us the time, the exact place of this vision, be April 4th of 536 B.C., uh, the 24th day of the first month in which this vision occurred. We can, we can date it. Uh, with the kings, with Cyrus the Mede coming, so we know when this was. Interestingly, this falls on the date um, that is within three days of Passover during that time, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that celebration was, of course, a celebration of the deliverance of the Jewish people from the bondage first in Egypt. So they come out of bondage in Egypt. They end up having to fight for the land from the Canaanites. They're then attacked by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. You can kind of see their history, amen? They kind of keep getting themselves into trouble. And every single time, God delivers them. And every single time, it is very costly. And so the Jewish people would be about to be delivered back to Jerusalem. So here they are in bondage again in Babylon. They're going to be set free to go back to Jerusalem, finally. And so there's this beautiful picture again of God's redemptive acts, the works that he does uh, to save and to make good on his promises. And so as Daniel sets this kind of in place for us, you can almost imagine what the Jewish people, those that were um, well-trained in, in the scriptures as they would have known them. So principally the five books of Moses, they would have been thinking, well, Abraham was delivered and Isaac was delivered and Jacob was delivered. They would have been running back through the patriarchs. They, they would have thought about the Torah at that time. And they're about to celebrate the sanctified victory to where God delivered the original Jewish people out, out from the hand of, of their Egyptian oppressors. And, and this incredible miracle, the dividing of the Red Sea and the climax of that departure as they begin to you know, go back into the land. And then you would think that they would have learned something. You would think at that moment in time, after spending 400 years in slavery in Egypt, when they got delivered. Now imagine, think about it. I, you know, I don't know how your brain works, but I'm kind of thinking if several generations of our people had perished under that type of oppressive hand, and then miraculously God sets us free, and he doesn't just kind of do it with a little, you know, a little bit of, well, maybe that was a miracle. Maybe it wasn't a miracle. No, it was a stone cold series of miracles that began with 10 plagues, right? 
And so the or began with nine plagues. And then the 10th plague is the angel of death is going to pass over the encampment of the Egyptians and the firstborn of everyone. If there's not blood covering the doorposts, the lentils of the house, then your firstborn dies. They survive that. They set off to leave. Pharaoh finally says, you can go. They get down to the Red Sea. And it's like, uh, we don't have any boats. Did anyone think of this? You know, the logistics person gets fired. They get down to the shore of the Red Sea, and it's like, um, we have a real problem. There are about 2 million of us, and we don't have a single inner tube. And God delivers. God opens up the sea. They pass through on dry ground, and they get to the other side, and the Egyptians are obliterated as the sea closes in on them. Now, if I'm on the other side, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a temple and I'm going to worship the true and the living God. Thank you, Lord, for delivering me. Thank you for sparing my life, my family's life. That would have been my first thought. But the Jewish people, their first thought was, Moses, you brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us. And they start grumbling and whining and complaining against God. So much so that God finally says, fine. If you want law, I'll give you law. And Moses goes on the mountain, comes back with Ten Commandments. While he's up there, they throw a party at the base of the mountain. They cash in all of their earrings. They throw them into the fire. And they have the audacity to say, when Moses comes back down, here's Moses and Aaron. We didn't make the golden calf. It made itself. It came out of the campfire. You see, Daniel is learning this lesson that the heart of man is deceitful, it's desperately wicked, and who can know it? And no matter what God does, unless you are in tune to God, unless you have a relationship with God, unless God visits you and you are absolutely standing with him, then our propensity is to turn away from the Lord. And so that is where Daniel sees this, this vision of this man that's going to come touch them. Because that is our problem. Who is this guy? I believe it very clearly is a pre-incarnate uh, picture of Christ, the anointed one. The one who's cut off in the previous vision in chapter 9. Now, how do we know that? How do we know who this is? First, Daniel's description of this man resembles ex- almost to a T the Ezekiel's vision of the second person of the Trinity, uh, which is found there in Ezekiel chapter 1. And it says there, verses 26 through 28, above the expanse over their heads was what looked like the throne of sapphire, and high above the throne was a figure of a man. Sound familiar? Of a man. And I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal full of fire. And from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant sun surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day. So was his radiance around him. And this appearance was as a likeness of the glory of the Lord. And so very similar to what uh, Daniel sees here in his description. It is also the same vision 
that the apostle John receives when he's in the island, on the island of Patmos in this cave when the Lord reveals to him what we call the book of Revelation. They're in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, verses 13 to 16. Then someone, like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing water. Sound familiar? It's the same guy. And in his right hand were held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. In other words, Daniel is touched by the Lord himself. Daniel receives a vision actually from the Lord Jesus. He's paralyzed by this. He, he sees this, and, and all of a sudden, what happens to him is what you would expect uh, to happen to anyone who comes into contact with the true and the living God. Whether it's in human form or, or whether it's a vision of the Lord in, in all of his glory. Verse 7, notice how it continues. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. And therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. You remember what Isaiah said in our introduction to Isaiah, if you were with us? As Isaiah is called, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, the next thing he said was, Woe is me, I am undone. And he fell on his face. And yet I've heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground, and suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. He's on all fours, trembling before the Lord. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, how would you like to be touched by the Lord and have him say to you, Jeff, fill in the blank with your name, greatly beloved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And Daniel's encounter is very similar to what happened to Paul or Saul of Tarsus, as he was then known on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. As, as Saul has this encounter with Jesus, this bright light falls upon him, and at the, at the sight, the sound of Christ, he falls flat on his face. The apostle John did the same thing in John chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell on my face as dead. How did, how did Daniel respond to all of this? Same way that Ezekiel responded when he saw God. And when I saw it, I fell face down and heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand to your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking. That's what Ezekiel got. And so these, these common visions of when the Lord is speaking in this type of environment, 
the, the pattern is, is very obvious. There's a vision. There's a falling down. There's being raised up. There's a new revelation from the Lord. God is saying something that is for that moment and for that people and often is applied to the future. And so Daniel was touched by this man, and this man, I, I believe, is, is the Lord Jesus himself, pre-incarnate. Uh, what we would call in, in theologic terms a, a Christophany, an appearance in the Old Testament uh, of the Lord Jesus before he came to this earth as Emmanuel. And it's real clear that this image is <clears throat> not just a vision, but there's an actual physical touch on the prophet. His hand is on, is on him. And it seems to me that as you, as you understand this, you can, you can almost see that the Lord is saying, look, you've seen something that nobody else has seen up to this point in time. And I want you to understand it because people are going to be looking to your words in the future. And I want to give it a, I want to give it a stamp of approval. And I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to, to purchase art. Uh, we have a couple of artists in our family. Um, when, when you're, fairly famous as an artist um, you end up normally having a single piece that single piece is the original and then lithographs are made after that and very often those lithographs will then be also touched up in for instance in the case of oil paintings and they'll make 1500 copies of that painting but but there on the bottom of or on the back of that particular lithograph there will be a stamp and that stamp will be the approval that that's a genuine copy of the original and I believe that's exactly what this is. The Lord is giving a stamp. This is going to occur again. I want you to understand it. Here's the component parts of it. And so this man touches Daniel. And, and it really is kind of a, a foreshadowing of the things that happen to us when the Lord touches us. Uh, we stand up. We go from our being dead in our trespasses and sins to being alive in Christ. We receive a vision. We receive power. We receive information we didn't previously have. And so the Lord is basically speaking also what happens in our salvation experience as God touches us. We're stood up from being dead. When we behold the Lord, uh, we have that experience that Solomon had as the authored Proverbs 9. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so Daniel is understanding stuff that he's never understood before. Even in his advanced age, he's hearing new things from God. It's one of those things that I, I pray for myself. And as I was saying this morning, we, we can get so stuck in our religion, so stuck in what we've done in the past, just so stuck in the way that we... Uh, try and communicate with God or have him communicate to us that we stop looking for new experiences. One of my own personal prayers is, Lord, don't let me get stagnant. Don't, don't let me stop growing. Uh, I was joking with Pastor Alex uh, backstage before we were coming out for service and we were talking about, you know, he, he has children and he's got a couple of daughters and they're like, you know, eight, 11 years old and I was reminiscing when my boys were that age and we were talking about it. And then I started to think about it. I go, Alex, you were born the first year that I started in ministry. And I started thinking about it. I go, what have I been doing with my life for the last 30 plus years? And then all of these things just flood through your heart. You want to keep growing from the time you meet Jesus to the time you go home. 
you don't want to stop growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And here's why. Just like Daniel, you have a very real adversary that wants to get you stagnant, wants to destroy you, wants to kill you if he can. Verse 12, and then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. This is the Lord Jesus responding to the prayer of the saints. This is God saying, I heard you, I'm on it. This is, this is a personal revelation to Daniel himself. I, I've come because you asked me to come. You prayed, I'm here. Brothers and sisters, mark this passage. You think God doesn't hear you in those moments when you've been in distress, when you've lived a life, maybe even in captivity, when you have been in that spot to where maybe you're not sure because I'm guaranteeing you that after 69 years in captivity, you might have the propensity to think that God forgot about you. But God had not forgot one moment of what was going on in Daniel's life and every step of the way, and here's what happens. I have, become, I have come because of your words. You asked, here I am, but... Circle verse 13, first word in English, but. Here's the tension. Here's the battle. Here's what's going on in your life, my life, the life of the church in general. Every believer is in this place, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia, the enemy, withstood me for 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came up to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. And now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. He's basically told Daniel, You've been in a war, you've been in a bat battle. Satan has been trying to take you out. But I'm here to tell you the very same thing that John would hear in chapter 1 of the book of, the book of Revelation. Do not be afraid, for I am the first and I am the last. The Lord was encouraging Daniel. He said, when you were praying, I heard your prayers. When you cried out, that's why I'm here. And there was a battle for your existence on this earth and I want you to look at this in this way because skeptics take this passage and they go, see, oh, it couldn't be Jesus. He's not all powerful. He needs help and blah, 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 blah. How can be Jesus be delayed? How could he be resisted? Well, look, that, that's actually not uncommon in scripture, number one. I, I believe the Lord himself wrestled all night with Jacob, didn't he? The angel of the Lord did not Satan himself attempt to completely throw Jesus off track and tempted him in the wilderness for 40 days. Amen. 
So Jesus was out there doing battle with the enemy for 40 days. God actually sent angels to tend to Jesus after that battle, did he not? So if Jesus, God incarnate in human flesh, was in need of some angelic assistance, it would not be uncommon for this picture to be presented to us. And in fact, we're told that Jesus had at his disposal 12 legions of angels should he need them. We're also told that Satan comes to steal away the seed that is sown. There are all kinds of things where God has given, for whatever reason, God alone knows. For exactly as his word declares to us, his ways are above our ways. We cannot know them, nor can we find them out. God does things we don't understand. I think the sooner we learn that as believers, the better off we are in our thinking and our reasoning about the things of God. God allows things for God's purposes. And they may not make any sense to you as a human being. God does not always tell us why he does what he does the way he does it. But he's God. And the whole time in this story, he said, I heard you. I heard you when you started praying 69 years ago when you first got here. I've been listening to every word you've ever uttered, Daniel. I I stored up every last bit of that information, and I've not forgotten a bit of it. Sometimes we look at this and we go, well, you know, is God actually sovereign or not? Is God really in control? I always default to things that I know. When I don't know something, I default to what I do know. Here's what I know about God. Factually, accurately. God desires that all men come to the knowledge of repentance. In other words, that they're saved. But I know that not all men do. So, so I know that the gospel is sufficient to save anyone, but I also know that not everyone will receive it. So before you accuse God of being able to do something or not do something based on what you think he can do or can't do, it's better to leave God as God and recognize that we may not know humanly what it is that God is at work doing Daniel's vision here is tremendous warfare. And we don't know what's going on in the heavenlies behind the scenes. I'm actually personally, I don't know if you ever think about this, I am actually glad I cannot see into the heavenlies. I'm thankful I I don't see the war that rages around me every day. Every demon, every angel, you know, I don't know when Satan does a flyby on my life himself personally. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. He cannot be at all places at one time. He is limited in his capacity, but he's got a whole bunch of demons to help him. And so I'm glad I can't see all that. But I guarantee you, God wouldn't call it war if there wasn't a real battle. There's a real battle. There's actually a battle between angels and demons fighting in the heavenly places, waging war on your behalf. And behind the scenes, what we know is this. We know who wins in the end, don't we? In the meantime, there's going to be some things that are going to look like, well, maybe the, the enemy's winning. The good news is those invisible thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities have actually already been disarmed to some degree. That's what the book of Ephesians declares for us there in chapter 3 and chapter 6. 
Colossians chapter 1 says much the same thing. They're already, they've lost the war, but they haven't given up fighting. I share a story every once in a while. At the end of the Pacific Theater during World War II, uh, most of you know that the Japanese army, the Imperial Army of Japan, had pretty much populated every single island in the South Pacific. Most of them were highly fortified. Uh, Many of them were very, very immense cave complexes. uh, And most of the inter-island mountain ranges uh, had a tremendous number of those cave systems. And some of those soldiers, in some cases, stayed in those caves a whole long time after the war was over. And in one case, 40 years And they were still loyal to the emperor of Japan, even though Japan had lost the war. They were, they were forced to surrender some 40 years later. And so imagine that. That would be in the 1980s, in case your math's not very good. So don't think that the enemy's going to give up. The enemy's not going to give up. But the enemy also can't win. Daniel sees that picture. It's a picture of your life. The enemy greater is he who's in you. Amen? There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? No weapon fashioned against you shall prosper, says the Lord. Amen? But that doesn't mean that the enemy's not going to try. That doesn't mean that you're going to be immune to all attacks. You aren't going to wander around in a little hyper-spiritual bubble, and you aren't going to get thumped every once in a while. The good news is you'll never lose because that adversary is limited in what he can do. Just as though Christ will be cut off, and Daniel's vision says Messiah is going to be cut off, not for himself, but for us, for you and me. Jesus hung on a cross because of me. Jesus went to Calvary because of me. Jesus didn't need to save himself. He needed to save me. And and so when Messiah was cut off, Jesus is saying, look, I got this. It's going to be okay. He's not going to be delayed forever. There, There will be battles. And he, he can save anybody who is willing to come to him. And he will save anyone who's willing to come to him. Because ultimately what Daniel saw was exactly what you and I need to leave this place with tonight. And the winner is the man, Jesus. That's why he said from the cross that it is finished, amen? You know what he could have also said? And devil, you're finished. He said, it's finished. It's done. To tell us die. What I came to do is done. There is no one doing it. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, he sealed the deal. Those invisible thrones and principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, in that very instant were actually fully defeated. They just simply haven't surrendered yet. They, they haven't actually received the the final punishment that day is coming 
And from Daniel's perspective, we are a whole bunch closer to that end date than Daniel was. Amen? We're we're 2,500 years closer to be exact. It's Satan, the great counterfeiter that he is, still trying to make it look like he might possibly win. And so he wins a skirmish here. And you see it in the lives of people that you know that get picked off by the enemy. Any of you have somebody that you know that you thought for sure was at least at some point in their time walking with the Lord, but they were that seed that fell on hard ground? They sprung up for a moment, but the sun became hot and the plant of their spiritual life was withered in the sun and Satan snatched that away. You see, the the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is not limited in his ability, but Satan is limited in his. God can save. God is mighty to save. And so in this picture, Daniel is actually seeing the conquering one. He's seeing the one that Isaiah 55 declares, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. For as high as the heavens are higher than yours, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. And in our day and time, God has purposely limited himself. He, he hasn't extracted judgment from mankind. He hasn't fully hardened every heart that's already hard. We live in that time that we call the age of grace where you can make the decision yourself to follow Christ. And so Daniel is seeing a picture of the history of the world in that sense. As Satan hinders, God is faithful. As Satan attacks, God defends. As Satan lies, Christ tells the truth. That's a picture of how good God is. He even allows us the opportunity to disagree. As Michael steps into this picture, the archangel, you also see him in Jude 9. We'll see him again in chapter 11 as the prince of Israel. But even though Michael, the archangel, when he's disputing with the devil over the body of Moses didn't dare to bring a slanderous accusation against the, you know, he's, the devil is powerful. But he's no match for Jesus. The devil is strong, but he's no match for Jesus. Revelation chapter 12, we find this and we'll wrap it up. Verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. That would be the devil. And the dragon and his angels fought back. If there's war in heaven, you can be sure there's war here on earth. If God allows limited access of Satan and his minions to the heavenlies, because this is during the time of the tribulation from chapter 6 on is still yet future to us. So this picture in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation is still future to tonight. And his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. Can't wait for that day. Amen. 
And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. You see, right now, the devil still has a limited sphere of influence. He still has some limited access, at least to the heavenlies. But there's going to come a time when his concentrated effort is going to be flung to the earth. Good news is, if you're a believer in Christ, you won't be here when that happens. You'll be back up there where he got kicked out. Amen? Sometimes God starts war on earth to hinder Satan. That's what Isaiah 45 says. Sometimes the lamb and Satan begin wars. Those things that happen in the end time. Other times we find wars are started by man to satisfy their evil desires and sinful nature. But one day all wars are going to end. Amen? That's what Revelation 20 says. That final battle of Gog and Magog, when God says, that's it, that's the last war. No more war in the heavens, no more war on earth, no more war with man, no more demons, just angels and righteousness, and ultimately a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation wherein righteousness dwells. Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah, that day is coming. So as Daniel sees this vision, and it'll unfold over the next couple of chapters of what it's going to be like at the end, we take great comfort in the fact that just like it was true in Daniel's life, the Lord's listening. He knows exactly when he needs to show up in your life. And he is not short so that his arm cannot save. Amen? We'll just stand and we'll close in prayer together. So worship team comes back out. If you need prayer, some of our pastors are going to come up and be available for that. Rest in him. Have his thoughts in your mind and in your heart. And walk with him this week. Father, thank you. Thank you that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. That there is no weapon. Nothing fashioned against us will actually prosper ultimately. How we may suffer a stripe. We might get a little wound here or there. But we know one day our king is coming back. The heavens will open. And that trumpet, that loud voice will shout. And we who are alive and remain will meet you in the air. We'll be called home. Until that time strengthen us. Let us be like Daniel, Lord, looking forward to that glorious appearing of our great God and King, ready for the battle that's going to face us today, tomorrow, this week. Lord, thank you that you're stronger in us than the one who's in this world. Thank you that we don't fight for a victory. That victory's been won, but we fight from victory. We're on the winning side. We're on the team that ultimately will occupy all eternity. And so, Lord, we're grateful for that peace that that gives us. Pray that you would bless us, Lord. Strengthen your people. Lord, cause us to walk in you this week in a wonderful way where we would experience your touch as Daniel did. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.